Well, Rich kept saying, I don't know if I remember how to do this. And uh, now that it's six minutes after, that was proof that maybe he doesn't. <laughs> I don't know. It's just... <laughs> Been a long time, been a while uh, that we've since we've been in the big studio. Uh, I actually had someone, believe it or not, I, it's been an interesting day in social media. There's uh, there's a guy who uh, decided to uh, take a take a shot at how much traveling I do. Uh, I shouldn't be an elder in the church if I'm traveling so much. He seems to not be aware of the fact that uh, I'm I am the only elder at my church that is not full time with the church. We have three elders that are full-time with the church, and um, I've always been full-time with Alpha and Omega Ministries. That did not stop when I became an elder there. Uh, and part of my job uh, is to travel, and in fact, in 2019, I traveled 165,000 miles around uh, the world at that particular point in time. Now it's around the nation. It's not quite as fast, um, though I did just <laughs> have a dear friend and his wife, who are uh, more than 10 years older than I am, um, trying to fly uh, yesterday, and they ended up sleeping uh, six hours on the floor behind a rental car counter uh, at an airport someplace. So, yeah, uh, lots of lots of fun there. I'm not looking forward to anything like that. I'll I'll put up with the uh, the rainstorms and uh, having to get my electricity hooked up in a lake at a KOA um, rather than rather than doing that. But uh, anyway. Here we are, and we're in the big studio because we've got a lot to talk about today and a lot of things to cover. I did just want to um, mention real, real briefly, I, I, I said, I announced Sunday night uh, just what a glorious day, uh, glorious evening we had at church. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long, long time. In fact, little Janny, my granddaughter, uh, had been looking forward to this for even longer uh, we had put this off so that both mom and Ransom, my daughter Summer and my grandson Ransom, who was born early September, would be able to be there for her, uh, her baptism. And so one of the reasons that I put in such long hours driving back last week after picking up our new tow vehicle um, was so I could be here not only to preach on Romans 11, Preach on Romans 11 as it is used in the baptism debate. That, there, no one could ever preach Romans 11 in a single sermon and do any justice to almost anything. It is, I think, one of the most challenging chapters in the New Testament, simply because of all the background issues that have to be brought in to really interpret the olive tree and the branches and the horticultural stuff and all the covenantal stuff and everything else. Anyway, um, Preached on, and it may be the last of the baptism series. We may do one more uh, to sort of wrap things up if if we feel the need to do so. But had that going on, had a really good group there. Uh, Janie was one of 15 baptisms I did, and I, I will confess, I'm hurting. Uh, 48 hours later, I'm, I'm in pain. And, but my fellow pastors will understand why. We don't put as much water in our baptistry as many other people do because we have, Apologia has lots of young kids who are making professions of faith and we encourage them in that way. And so there was one fellow that I literally held uh, until time for the baptism um, just so people could see him. That's, I 
I remember very clearly when I was baptized, I remember that night, I remember people saying, well, the only thing we could see of you was your head, the top of your head, the very top of my head, that's all I could see. And I, I get that. Um, but the, what that means is uh, when you baptize the adults, you don't have as much water in that tank. And that means you've got to get them way farther down before the water starts helping to bear their weight. Uh, let's just say that when I get up in the morning right now, <laughs> I'm looking a little bit older than my years. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, it, was a, it was a glorious evening. It was um, uh, Mike Hendrickson's kids uh, played in the service for the first time, uh, mus- musically wise. And they're the one, they're the two kids that have done all those skillet covers and, and, uh, skillet knows who they are. They got to meet him last year. It was just a wonderful, wonderful evening. I'm very thankful for those who prayed that I would get back to be able to do, uh, that service. And I just want to say publicly that to the one guy who commented on my tweet, uh, that this was, uh, bragging on my part. I forgive you. I really, you need forgiveness. Uh, and I, I forgive you, and, and I hope you will find your way someday. Uh, anyway, uh, with all that said, it's been an incredible day on social media. We'll get to that toward the end of the program because there's so many things to be talking about first. And the first thing we're going to be doing, do, uh, Rich, do you remember how to, uh, to do the big board thing? This, I, is, I, I this is a big board thing, and, and do you know how it is, is, is hooked up? and. Yeah. Oh, very good. Very nice. Very nice. Big, but okay. All right. Just want to make sure that's the whole reason we're in here uh, is uh, so that we can, we'll just leave it there. (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, now I I do actually, you know what? Um, First of all, that camera is, what's, what's all the space over here? I mean, there's nobody over here. Yeah, but there's, there's not supposed to be that much space behind me. There you go. That's much better. That's okay. Now here's now here's here's the real tricky thing. Um, oh, that will work. Look at that. Now is that when you when you switch to it? Go ahead and switch to the thing. I want to make sure this is there. Ah, isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? Uh, we will actually be able to see things now. That is very very good. I. I don't know what made me think about this today, but uh, I have this, you know, I think it's called Zoom Loop or something, I don't know, uh, that uh, I thought, you know, we're going to be looking at some textual stuff, so let's, let's see if we can get it big enough for the people my age can see it. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. John chapter 3, verse 13, if you want to, if you want to go there, uh, what I would like to do is um, address an issue. And I think you'll find it interesting, and hopefully it'll be edifying and helpful to folks. Uh, over the past past week or so, there have been comments that have uh, come up in regards to the... Well, evidently, I guess next month there's going to be some Christology conference someplace. Um... And there have been comments in regards to the nature of the Incarnation, which, of course, is important. We have discussions about it all the time when we are bringing the 
gospel outside of Christian faith to people outside. But uh, this is more in the context of inside and the current controversies and um, things that are going on and, you know, all the silly accusations of canonic theology and uh, Socinianism and all that kind of silly stuff. But anyway, uh, some conversation has been had, and, and it's a lot of people do think about this. What do you do, what do, you do with the concept of omnipresence in speaking of the Son in His divinity and the Son in, in His humanity? And it, it really it has to do with, with all of the attributes, the glory of Christ. Um, and we're going to be looking at, after this, we're going to look at a quotation from Francis Turretin that I think is really relevant to these things. But a lot of people aren't aware of the debate and the background of the debate concerning one particular text and uh, this is one of those situations where if you have the King James and the New King James and you have one reading, and if you have the ESV, NASB, NIV, LSB, etc., etc., uh, you'll have another reading, and that can lead to confusion and uh, uncertainty and things like that. And so we, we want to try to help with things like that. And that is John chapter 3. Verse 13. So let's look at the, um, at the text here. And I suppose, um, let's see, how do I do that again? Uh, well, there's multiple buttons down here. And I'm just trying to find... It's the only way to get this thing to reappear at certain points. Um, so in John 3, 13, um, uh, no one has come down, um, from heaven except no one has gone up into heaven except the son of man who has come down. So this is, all right, part of. Part of what you're going to see here, I should have gone over to, uh, hold on a second. Before we look at that, let's, don't do that. Let's look at, okay. So, the NASB has no one ascended into heaven, but he who, who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And then, if we grab texts and... Uh, there it is. No one hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. So the so it, so the there's some confusion in some of the variants as to where to attach the variant, whether it's what it's referring to, whether it's the ascended part and the descended part. So the King James version has even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So, and no man has sent up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. The NASB has, no one has ascended in heaven, but he who descended from heaven, 
the Son of Man. So the, the which is in heaven is not in the um, modern translations because it is not in the text that is being translated. So you can see here, you can see this little symbol, which corresponds to this symbol here, which means there are words added at this point in the text. So the Son of Man, and then the first reading that is given, and this is the uh, Nessie Island. We will look down here at the bottom at the UBS 5th in a moment. But Ha'on Ento Ureno. So the Son of Man, the one being in heaven, is the other reading. And then the text, which is which deletes, does not have that phraseology. Uh, these are the manuscripts that contain that. So what you have in the longer reading is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now that's, how would you understand that? Because it, it, it's saying no one has gone up into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. So you have, you have the, you know, there's one who's, who's come down from heaven, but then this longer reading says, but he's in heaven. So, not overly surprisingly, then, you will note down here in the uh, UBS 5th, which gives a, a, a wider number, uh, a wider, you're given more information when the UBS 5th gives a variant, it gives much more information than that Nassiolan does. Nassiolan gives many more variants. The UBS focuses upon variants that would specifically influence the translation. So they are doing, uh, you know, their, their focus is upon people doing Bible translation work. So they, ha they give Anthropu, the reading up here, and then you have the same witnesses, though many, many more, listed out for you here. And so uh, you would have P66, P75, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus. And so those those are your two earliest papyri manuscripts of the Gospel of John, your two earliest unsealed manuscripts of the Gospel of John, uh, all end the way that the Nessialan has it and continues on with, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent. Um, but then you have many others, BLT, um, Washingtonianus in supplemental form there, uh, other uh, unseals, uh, minuscules, Sahidic Coptic, part of the Boharic, uh, some of the Georgian, the Diatessaron, origin, and then something that if, see, this is the, the text that a lot of people get when they are in um, taking first year Greek. But very often, the textual footnotes are not explained in first year Greek. That's normally a second year Greek subject. And so, a lot of people will have all this stuff down here, but they've never been instructed as to what it means, which can be confusing because, for example, look at here. You have origin LAT 2 slash 4. Eh? 2 slash 4, origin? Yes. Latin version of origin 2 of 4 times, which means it's not this way 2 of 4 times as well. It's half. 
Um, you'll see that with a lot. Uh, Epiphanius down here is 3 slash 4. So 3 out of 4 times. 75% of the time, Epiphanius has it one way. That means once he has it another way, and that you'll find which you can find the other way he has it, and that is right here. There is Epiphanius 1 out of 4. And he now is giving this other reading. Now, the other reading, which we have more clearly presented to us here in the Nessialan, um, this reading, Son of Man, who is in heaven, you'll notice there are a number of variants in it. So, in other words, um, Codex Alexandrinus seemingly omitted own initially, and then that was fixed by a, a corrector. Uh, you've got some of the main Byzantine uh, unseals, family one, family 13, uh, lots of minuscule texts, many, many, many. The BYZ symbol, symbol meaning the Byzantine symbol uh, right there. Uh, lectionaries, even though some of them still have a, a one, one out of two, so there's some changes. Some of them have Son of God for Son of Man. Um, you have Latin, numerous of the Latin manuscripts, the Vulgate, uh, Curatonian Syriac. Some have who was in heaven, not who is in heaven. So maybe scribes struggling with that variant there, and that does make sense that there would be. Uh, we saw up above that uh, you know, part of the Boharic Coptic uh, reads one way and part the other way. Uh, Cyril, 14 out of 16 times. <laughs> one out of 16 times he has theu. So, so you, you see the complication that comes when you have uh, the early church fathers thrown in here. Ethiopic, Georgian, Slavian, Hippolytus. Uh, we saw origin, Latin, two out of four times. Uh, Goes on down, you can see a large number of, uh, here's the other six, one out of 16 for Cyril. <laughs> got, we have got all 16, you can figure out what all 16 references in Cyril were. That's pretty cool, out of a single footnote. Uh, Theodoret, three out of four, John of Damascus, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so it is widely testified amongst the fathers both ways. Both ways. Having the longer ending and not having the longer ending. Um, Augustine uh, knows of it in, uh, in this particular form. And then you have Son of Man, the one who is from heaven. Not who was in heaven, but the Son of Man who, what, who is from heaven. Not is in heaven right now, but is from heaven. And then you have that in 0141, certain, uh, a number of lectionaries, and uh, at least one form of the Syriac text. So, all that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Isn't that, isn't, wasn't that an exciting thing to go through? No, sorry about that. Especially if you're listening to this on the road. I put some of our Dividing Line truckers to sleep on that one. But the whole reason for doing this is it is a complicated variant. There is no question that it's a complicated variant. And fundamentally, the variant is between, though there are subvariants. Fundamentally, the variant is between saying uh, the one who, no one has gone up into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, or 
the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, one last thing on the textual stuff before we talk about some of the possible theological ramifications. Um, I'm going to be really interested, and it should be coming soon. In fact, I was going to check on it because I haven't checked for a few weeks. I, I would expect, given the feeds that I follow, uh, that I would have seen the announcement of the Gospel of John coming out in the CBGM. But I really hope it comes out pretty soon because the, the most, certainly in my opinion, the most interesting variance until they get to Romans uh, will be in the Gospel of John. And I'm just going to take a wild guess. I mean, there's no way without access to a very wide, around, a wide amount of information. You can't really know what the uh, coherence decisions are going to be, the, the textual flow decisions are going to be. Just, and anything until you have that information is just a, an educated guess at best. But I'm just willing to go out on a limb and say I've got this, this strange feeling that CBGM might just say that the longer ending has higher coherence. Um, I don't know. It's a lot of data to be, to be crunching. And something else to keep in mind is CBGM is not looking at the vast majority of the stuff that's down here. All these early church fathers, CBGM doesn't look at that. Not yet, anyways. There may be, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how you would even make that work, to be honest with you. Um, but just looking manuscript wise, I'm just wondering if, uh, which direction the CBGM will go. And I'm, I'm sort of wondering, hmm, I wonder if it's going to say that there's a higher likelihood, there's a higher coherence among the witnesses that say, who is in heaven. But how would we understand that? How would we understand, um, let's, let's say, for the sake of argumentation, that we uh, take the reading, the Son of Man who is in heaven. What does that mean? At least one commentator has pointed out that you could look at that in the context of uh, John, the, the standpoint of John at the time of John's writing. Hence, the Son of Man, who now as resurrected Lord is in heaven. That's, that's a possibility. The, the, the majority of the discussion down through the ages, has been, if you take it as uh, no one has ascended into heaven except the, son, except the one who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven, is this a statement relevant to the continued omnipresence of the second person of the Trinity even in the point of incarnation. Because I really can't think of many other texts that would have a really direct reference to even asking the question. 
And I would think that most of us would recognize that this could be one of those places where the real argument uh, is joined that's going to determine how we end up viewing certain things. And, and that is, do we follow Calvin and say where God has made an end of speaking, so should we? Or do we follow Edwards, at least in his discussion of Adam and, the, and his will, and go well beyond where God has made an end of speaking? That is, that is the question. And that also raises, for many of us, the question of how far are we willing to go to satisfy the curiosity of man? Is there any limitation? Is there any limitation to what questions we should even be willing to seek to offer an answer to? In our modern day, where there is no concept whatsoever of boundaries, of propriety, and certainly no concept of kingly honor, um, creaturely humility, man believes that the universe is his oyster. And he can do with it as he wishes. And he can probe its secrets without any limitation. Could I suggest that outside of Christian theology, there's just a a really clear illustration, I think, many areas really, where a Christian view of creation and a Christian view of science would give us barriers as to what we would and would not do as Christians in dealing with God's creation. I'm not saying that Christians have always been consistent in this. I'm simply saying you could make a very strong case. That messing with DNA, that uh, seeking to engage in eugenics, these would be places where modern man demonstrates a fundamental lack of boundaries because there is no view of man as being created in the image of God. And hence, there is no glory of God to be concerned about. There is no purpose of God to be concerned about. And it can even happen within the context um, of the theological development of the church over time. I think most of us are aware, and if not, let me just mention to you, the early enemies of the Christian faith called the Gnostics did not have any barriers as to what they would probe into. And so the wild, heretical, damaging Gnostic Gospels and the stories they told, some of which are found in the Quran, some of which are foundational to Roman Catholic theology to this day on Mary. Those Gnostic Gospels would speculate 
on the early life of Jesus. Now, the scriptures tell us almost nothing about the early life of Jesus. We are given one brief glimpse of Jesus in the temple. Not with Mary, but you know which story I'm talking about. Uh, Speaking with the elders. That's all we're told. And the Gnostics were not satisfied with that. That was not enough. And so they speculated, and the Jesus that they came up with, by the way, was a absolute miscreant, a divinely powerful, unbridled, uncontrolled miscreant. And that's not who Jesus was. But the point is, there was this human desire to answer questions that simply... Simply put, we have to go, God has chosen not to give us that information. And is there a willingness on the part of Christians and Christian theologians and Christian philosophers and, and historians and everything else to, to stop and to say there are questions that are not to be considered important for life and godliness because the Holy Spirit has not has not engaged these things, has not addressed these issues. And what's more, if there has been speculation in the past by theologians and leaders who ended up having a major impact upon those who came after them, does that that mean that since they were willing to speculate, that their speculation should be given a level of religious and theological authority. And on what basis? And as in all things, by what standard are these things to be tested? Once you have gone outside the realm of what Scripture actually reveals, you no longer have recourse to Scripture as the corrective. And so you can't ask by what standard. Your standard is going to have to change once you get to that point. And a lot of people just don't seem to realize how many times in church history a belief has risen that has been rejected by us in the modern period. For all our respect for Augustine, Augustine said things that were foundational to the development of the doctrine of purgatory. Now, he did not have a doctrine of purgatory, but he did have a, he did make statements about a a uh, post-death cleansing that are unbiblical. And anyone who reads anybody on Augustine uh, knows that Augustine was influenced by uh, a number of Platonic categories in the development of his theology, which is why you can make the argument that to maintain post-Nicene orthodoxy, specifically as it becomes formulated in Augustine, 
requires platonic categories because he himself was influenced by that. So by what standard do you then judge even someone like Augustine, or do you even judge Augustine? These are questions that certainly I've had to deal with for many years in dealing with Roman Catholicism, because the magisterium becomes your, your standard there. The magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church becomes the standard by which those judgments are made, though they are loath to make them themselves. I've always found that interesting. They could have given us a entire listing of the uh, inspired oral traditions by now, but just never had time to get around to it in all those years. But anyway, uh, for those outside of Rome, well, you can go to Eastern Orthodoxy. Many of them would point to the practices and liturgy of the church as a means of providing that kind of interpretation, though I, I think they really struggle for consistency there. But for those of us who are Reformed Baptists, there shouldn't be any question here. This, this should not be a difficult uh, issue to address, but it's becoming difficult because of the fundamental shifting of the grounds of ultimate authority and interpretation that is taking place in, uh, in our midst and causing the divisions that we are seeing uh, today. So those are really important issues to address. So here's, here's a, a text, and there are, there are certain guys I, I happen to notice that one of the two, the two guys that did the uh, wild and crazy debate in Houston a few years ago uh, with Leighton Flowers and Pritchett um, Hernandez and Zacariades. Um, Zacariades is real. This is a, one of his big things, is John 3.13 and... Um, all those issues related there too. And up until recently, most of us could just go, well, it's interesting speculation, but you know, no one was holding a theological knife to our throat. Well, he would. <laughs> he holds a theological knife to everybody's throat. It's why, why he's pretty much on his own. Um, but uh, for the rest of us, like, um, well, we can... We can sit around, we can talk about it, we can think about it. You know, when you're preaching through John chapter 3, you might want to come up with a consensus understanding amongst the elders of your church as to how you're going to handle this. And um, I think especially a text like this does illustrate the importance of looking at these variants and dealing with them when you're preaching through a text because... Whether you, whether you like it or not, and whether you lament it or not, that the fact is you're going to have people sitting in front of you. They're going to have a wide variety of translations. And people are going to notice, you know, if you spend five minutes talking about who is in heaven, and their Bible doesn't have who is in heaven, they're going to be really confused. Uh, and if it has in, is in heaven and you don't even mention it, they're going to be really confused too. And you can lament that and say, that would all be... Much better if we just use the King James Version. But the fact of the matter is, um, Erasmus probably didn't even know that this variant existed. I mean, I don't know. I haven't read his annotations at this point. I'd like to look them up. It would be interesting. 
Uh, but he probably didn't even know. Probably, I, I doubt, I don't believe that any of the manuscripts he had access to um, would have had that reading. So the fact is, if you just simply went with the King James, then you wouldn't even know what the most primitive reading of John 3 was. Because it is the most primitive reading. I mean, when you have P66, P75, Sinaiticus, and Vaticanus together, that's very, very, very early. That's very, very, very early. Uh, no matter how you, no matter how you, how you push it, and I'm looking here real quickly. Uh, well, this is interesting. I'm looking down. Now I just ran over it quickly, and my eyesight's not the way that it once was. But what's interesting to me is I do not see. Dee, 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 dee. Sure, I'm glad we fixed the resolution on this, so I can see this now. Uh, well, I fixed the resolution, but. You know what I mean. Um, I don't see Irenaeus. Hmm. I wonder. That, that raises the question. Uh, did Irenaeus not cite John 3.13 in any of his writings? Interesting factoid to want to look up. Um, I was just trying to look at what, might, what some of the earliest sources would be um, outside of, well, see, Alexandrinus is corrected and has variants in it. It almost looks like the earliest Greek manuscript might be Delta, um, as far as uh, just scanning through the things here. So we want to know, it is absolutely relevant to know how the church has read this text down through the ages and the Diatessaron, Origen, Eusebius, uh, Adamantius, Gregory Nazianzus, Apollinaris, uh, Gregory Nisa, Didymus, Epiphanius, Cyril, most of the times. Um, and that, that's interesting to me, by the way. That's interesting to me that Cyril, 14 out of 16 times, reads in that, in that particular fashion because that, that's Cyril of Alexandra, that's the Alexandrian group versus the folks from Antioch and their different emphases and that all comes out in the Council of Chalcedon that we've talked about uh, before, and we'll talk about again more in the future. Um, and even, even who's citing what in the footnotes of the textual data can have interesting uh, ramifications as far as things like that are concerned. But it is, it is vitally important to know what the earliest reading was. And I would say, you would, if, if you're doing a serious study of John chapter 3, you need to have that information. We have it today. You would not have had it. You would not have had it easily any earlier than 60, 70 years ago. But you have it now. And uh, that's actually a blessing. I, I know a lot of folks like, no, 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 it's actually a blessing to know what the earliest reading at this text uh, was. I think that's exceptionally important. And uh, um, so, there you go. So there's, um, there's John chapter 3, and the point, quick application is, we used to be able to talk about these things and do so without fearing that whichever side we came down on, on a, on a textual variant or on speculative theology that goes beyond 
what the apostles evidently thought we needed to know with clarity, uh, that you wouldn't have your head handed to you on a platter, depending on how you came down that. It is not a, a good thing that that's not the case right now, especially amongst certain elements of the Reformed, reformed world. Um, really shouldn't be that way, uh, sadly. So let me uh, drop that down, and um, we will take all the little markings off. No, we don't want to save that. And move on to our next uh, subject for the day. Have a nice little background there. Um, oh, I do want to, uh, I'm sorry, there was, I did say that we would have another. Okay, which one is it? Oh, we have many of them open right now. And of course, it won't be, it'll be the last one that I, that I choose. Well, second to last. <laughs> This is a um, citation I wanted to mention to you from Francis Turretson, who, of course, is lauded as, and, and, and was, just Francis Turretson defines uh, Reformed scholastic orthodoxy. And uh, that doesn't mean that he was infallible or anything of the kind. He was a brilliant theologian. I obviously I use him as an example when he, for example, says that the Kama Johannium in 1 John 5, 7 was in the majority of the Greek manuscripts. He was wrong. But how could he have known differently uh, until the modern period? How would anyone have known differently? There weren't any card catalogs. There, there was no interlibrary loan. Uh, there wasn't any way to know one way or the other. And so he had some flawed information and hence some flawed conclusions and big deal. That's, that's the same with everybody that we, we read in history as long as we don't elevate, elevate them to the position of having final authority. And so, it, you know, when I first ran into Molinism and Middle Knowledge, one of the first people I read was Turretin, and I was very blessed by it, but I also remember, I mean, this is so long ago, this is back in, this is back in our old apartment. Rich remembers our old apartment because uh, I have this clear, I have this clear memory of you coming up the stairs there, and I don't remember whether it was, whether it was Josh or Summer, was it Josh, that said, oh, okay, all right, and, and what, did, what did Josh call you? <laughs> you're you're remembering it too, so you you you'd have a different perspective in my in your mind. But I'm I'm I think he was running toward you, if I recall. And he goes, "Oh, you had him in your arms." Oh, is he in my arms? Yes, yes, in the door with him in your arms, already loaded with the wine. Oh, oh, and uh, and and Josh goes, "Look, it's it's rich the tingle," <laughs> which meant single. <laughs> Because there was a period of time that I'm not going to go into right now uh, when, when it did look like uh, Rich was, um, was going to, could have joined a Cenobitic monastery uh, and would have done just, just fine uh, there. But the Lord was, was gracious. 
Okay, we, we could talk about how many women Rich drove away by starting off with Romans 9, but we won't get into that right now. That's for, that's for a dividing line, you know, 10, 15 years from now when Rich and I will be sitting back, rocking back and forth, and somebody else will be taking care of all of the, uh, the technical stuff, and we'll just be sitting there reminiscing uh, about, about everything, and hopefully we'll still remember stuff like that. Um, what did that have to do uh, with, 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 with Turretin? Oh, yes, because it was in that, it was in that, it was in that uh, apartment. I remember sitting there uh, with Turretin uh, reading. It was right across the table from me. <laughs> You're older than I am, buddy, and better be careful about that. Uh, uh, oh, oh, I'm hoping my microphone's picking all this up so you know what's coming the other direction because uh, he says you can't tell by looking, and I will admit that's, that's true. I think most people would look at us, they'd, they'd figure I'm older than you, yeah. Mm-hmm. One of us has been taking all the, all the shots, all the damage, and okay. Anyway, um... I remember reading Turretin, and I had to read him two or three times. I'd have to read paragraphs more than once. He's not easy reading. But I had run into the concept of middle knowledge, I think, in seminary. And I was very blessed, and I still think today, that Turretin's criticism of the grounding objection has not been answered by Molinus since, obviously... I brought it up when talking to William Lane Craig. Um, <clears throat> with all that said, Turretin is a fascinating resource. And so I saw a quote, and I looked it up, and came across this section from Turretin talking about the two natures of Christ. And if, if I am to be... Uh, put out to pasture, if I am to be canceled, if I am to no longer be considered a um, reliable source of information, I just want to point out to everybody who's making these claims to you professors at certain seminaries who are saying this to your students, uh, saying that I hold to a canonic Christology or I'm a Socinian or um, things like that, that if I had read these words from Turretin in the year 2010 in any one of your churches, every single one of you not only would have agreed, but you would have understood what I was saying, and we all would have been together, and I'm not the one that's changed. You are. And you know it. Every single one of you knows it. And I don't know how you keep that voice quiet, but I pray that that voice will keep talking to you. What does Turretin say? If it is asked, according to what nature are humiliation, and you know, I'm going to go ahead and pop up the, let's go ahead and, and get a different color here. I don't like, let's make it something other than that. Okay. If it is asked, according to what nature are humiliation and exaltation to be ascribed to Christ? We answer that this is properly said of the person and is to refer to both natures, Hmm. but with a great difference, but with a great difference. To the human nature, so, so notice the very first sentence, what is he saying? 
that we can properly speak of humiliation and exaltation of the person of Christ. And I think that's vitally important. My concern is that we have this, we are, we are demonstrating a absolute drive to do what the scholastics did, whether the Reformed scholastics, which I obviously think are far better than the scholastics of the medieval period. And that is, again, to think that we have to come up with answers to every question, especially when those questions go beyond what Scripture gives to us. Now, what I love here is we've got John 17, 5, Philippians 2, 6, John 5, 17, 18, Matthew 8, 20, Ephesians 3, 4, 9, and 2 Corinthians 8, 9, all within this section. I'm very thankful for that. I'm very thankful. That's one of the differences you'll see between Protestant scholastics and medieval scholastics in the sense that these will actually be relevant to the subject. We've already, how many times over the past year or so have we gone to Aquinas, for example, and found so many passages from the Psalter being cited that had absolutely nothing to do, except in great tradition exegesis, uh, so in Origen's way of viewing things, had nothing to do with the subject at hand. These guys want the subject to be there. So with that, um, here you have the question being answered, exaltation, humiliation being ascribed to the one person, to both natures, but with a great difference. And he's answering a, a theological question. But there are places in the New Testament where you simply can't answer the question in this particular text. You can make overarching theological assertions, but I suggest to you that there are places in the New Testament where it was not the intention of the author to answer those kinds of questions. And only scholasticism says, ah, but we have the answer. We can go deeper. No. So I go back to Turretin. So there's a great difference in the uh, ascription of humiliation, exaltation, the person, both natures, to the human nature indeed, as to real depression and exaltation in itself. To the divine, however, only in respect of concealment and of manifestation. Now, I want you to see this word, conceal. Because there are men watching this video right now who have uh, put themselves in a position of judging my orthodoxy because I have sp spoken of the veiling of certain aspects of the glory of Christ as a part of the Incarnation. We are going to see, I didn't invent this language, I got this language from others, and that these others are sound men. And so if you're going to accuse me, you're going to have to accuse Turretin as well. And I could go to many, many others in the process. But we have 
to the divine, however, only in respect of concealment. Does that mean the divine ceases being the divine? Of course not. Of course not. But the incarnation has to really be the incarnation. The one seen upon the throne in Isaiah 6 could not walk by the seashore and teach the people in parables. Something had to happen. Right? Only in respect of concealment and of manifestation relative to the flesh as a... The flesh as a V-E-I-L. Veil. Exact terminology I used in my article, CRI Journal, years ago. That you all seemed to like back then. All seemed to like that back then. Before you became so wise. So educated. Yes. Relative to the flesh as a veil by which it was covered and whence it brought itself forth. (laughs) Covered? Veil? Concealment? Oh, no. I didn't know that Turretin was a (laughs) Neo-Sassinian. Well, he was one of the primary fighters against Sassinianism. Emptying. That is, what is that term, my friends? Kenosis. Emptying. Philippians 2. Emptying properly belongs to the human nature inasmuch as he took upon him. Oh. Oh. Yes, if you go back to my article in the CRI Journal on Philippians 2 and the Carmen Christi, what was my argument? What was my argument when I debated uh, Sabin in 1999 on this issue? How does the quote-unquote emptying take place? By addition. By addition. In fact, as I translated Philippians 2, we've gone over this a million times before, I'm not going to repeat it now, but as I translate Philippians chapter 2, I see the phrases in verses 6 and 7 as the means by which that emptying takes place, by taking on the form of a servant, by being found in human nature. He took upon him, that is the emptying. He took upon him our weakness and suffered and died. Exaltation, however, belongs to it inasmuch as by rising, it laid aside all weaknesses and assumed a glory which it had not before. But as to the deity, it was not lessened in the humiliation, nor increased, so let's change it up here so we can see it, nor increased in the exaltation. So what is the emptying? (laughs) But emptying is ascribed to it as to concealment and restraining of glory and majesty under the form of a servant. Any honest-hearted man knows that's exactly what I have been saying for minimally three decades. 
any honest hard person. And if you've been telling students something different than that, I will let you deal with your own conscience at that point. But you need to. Concealment and restraining of glory. That means he really wasn't God. No, that's not what he's saying, is it? That's not what he's saying, is it? No. And that's never what, been what I'm saying either, is it? Nope. Some of you who are going to be doing um, Christology talks you know, in the next month or something like that, you might want to remember this stuff. And be careful. Don't lie before God when you're misrepresenting others. Don't. Just, just don't misrepresent just remember what's being said here. Okay? Because if you don't, we will remind folks. But exaltation is ascribed to it as to manifestation and unfolding when the veil of the weakness of the flesh being removed, that glory which he had from eternity and had been concealed. For a time under that veil. Oh, goodness. Glory concealed for a time under that veil. Once again, honest-hearted men know. That's exactly what I've been saying. That's what I said. It's in print. If you take the time to read what's in print, a lot of people today didn't do that had been concealed for a time not veil, shown forth in the person of the mediator, exalted above all heavens. Now, please notice something. Let's go to another color here just to make it really stand out here. That glory which he had from eternity is shown out where? John 17.5. Oh, John 17.5. That's, that's the, remember, about six months ago, all the ruhaha going on about John 17, 5, and my saying, he, he's talking about pre-incarnate glory, and now it's, that's the glory that he's talking about here. It seems that Turretin agrees. <laughs> well, how'd that happen? Okay, the Son of Man is said to have emptied himself, Philippians 2, Carmen Christie. Not by an abdication of the deity, for he remained always equal with God, John 5, 17 and 18. So it's not a getting rid of something. But by a concealment of it under the servile form. Conceal, concealment of it under the servile form. That's flesh as a veil. This is the veiling, concealment, restraining, concealment of it under the servile form. He became poor, not by a loss of heavenly riches, which he always retained, since the fullness of Godhead was in him and the treasures of wisdom and knowledge were laid up in him, Philippians 2, 3, 8, 2, 3, 8, 9. But by a, you have to hide that, hiding of them, under the weak and needy flesh. Hmm. 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 Who knew that Turretin was a Neosicinian? Huh? Well, of course he wasn't, and neither have I ever been, and everyone who's used the term just needs to repent and uh, 
get with it. So there you go. Um, Francis Turretin. Uh, let me look here. Um, you know, I don't think it comes up on this. Rich, in um, I gave the specific citation for this in our channel, and unfortunately, that no longer works on this unit, and hence I cannot pull that up. Um, but I gave, um, when someone posted that second paragraph, I, I posted in the channel what the actual reference was, and I forgot to write it down and have it available here. If you can find it, great. If not, life will go on and, and all will be well. Okay. Um, if Rich can find it, I'll give it to you. Um, but if not, it's... If you have it in electronic form, it's not difficult to track down, obviously. You just look for some of the key phrases. That's certainly what I did uh, to track it down in the first place. All right. Um, I'm not sure how I did that, but that's okay. Okay. Uh, I'm going to skip some of the... Um, I'm going to skip the modern, the current event stuff. We've got an hour. Uh, current event stuff so that this can go on YouTube. <laughs> you, the, the YouTube sensors will be bored. They, they will have fallen asleep in the first five minutes of this program, so uh, no worries. Uh, but the next program, we're not going to be able to skip it. No findy? Uh, not, not quickly, no. <laughs> yeah. It, a lot of chattering. That just means we've we've talked uh, too much since then. But um, yeah, I, I remember what was posted and what I put up. But we've put a lot of stuff in there I, since I then. Yes, but most of our people are very very busy. Yes. Um, I'll skip the uh, the the uh, that stuff so that we can do that next time and we won't even bother trying to put that one on YouTube because we know it would happen anyway. Um, just briefly, I made reference uh, to the fact that Matthew Barrett uh, posted yesterday or the day before, Hans Borsma will join the PhD residency at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary to define Christian Platonism and explain why a realist metaphysic can keep us from the nominalism of modernity, which affects everything from our doctrine of God to our hermeneutic of Scripture, the beatific vision itself. I simply invite everybody to just read through Dr. Barrett's uh, timeline. You will be able to very quickly ascertain uh, the accuracy of what we're saying when we say that this area of subject is absolutely positively central to everything he's writing about, talking about, doing. He said in the next tweet, I have zero interest bickering or dividing with folks on the label CP, Christian Platonist. An exercise in missing the point, it's the content we're after, the realistic metaphysic versus nominalistic. Elastic enough to discern historical progression from Plato to Aristotle, from Augustinian to Thomistic realism. So remember a month ago when someone popped off at me 
um, for talking about Christian Platonism. Uh, you're, just, you're just using these labels to attack people. No, I'm not. Um, Craig Carter is a Christian Platonist. The central aspect of his argumentation is that we have to have Christian Platonism. And Borsma was the primary influence on the development of Carter's theology. And of course, I just simply pointed out that Borsma is a professor of ascetical theology at an Anglican university. Uh, And of course, uh, Carter's PhD is from a believing Catholic university. And Carter's definition of great tradition exegesis is soaked in the categories of Roman Catholic theology. Um, And he admits it. The very next paragraph, after he gives that definition, he admits it. But I can't get anybody to talk about it, or just simply dismiss it, or you're just just using labels. No. Some of us is actually reading these people. And some of us have dealt with Roman Catholicism long enough to know where it's coming from. Um, And so, there you go. Uh, I think that's, that's an important aspect. Um, here it is. Found it. Uh, Institutes of Elenctic Theology 13.9.8. If you want the reference to what came before. 13.9.8. Um, I knew I'd find it eventually. Thankfully, my phone scrolled quickly enough to be able to grab it. All right. So, one other thing that we need to um, make sure we're all up on, and then I just want to make some comments about what happened today on social media. We will, uh, I I mentioned, uh, I think on the last dividing line, uh, I haven't gotten back with Michael about it, but Michael Brown will be joining me on the dividing line. I'll be joining him on the the firing line. Not firing line. It has a line. Line of fire. Line of fire, thank you. Um, and we'll be talking about the 1946 movie, which will premiere in less than a month. Uh, 12th of November, I believe, is the date in New York City. And I had somebody in our channel just today saying, yep, you got to, because I already have people asking me questions about it. It's, it's getting around, and it will. And we hit this, it was one of the first subjects we addressed in here. We have done two programs on that board. We have gone through Leviticus 18 and 20, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. Um, and we have discussed arsenicoitai, arsenicoites, where it comes from, what its origin and source is, how to do uh, fair analysis of these things. And I'm telling you, if you have tuned me out up till now, stop tuning me out. You're going to get hit with this if you're a Christian and you say anything about the gospel, this is you're going you're gonna to have people raising these objections to you. You can either be prepared to turn it around to the glory of God and use it as a key to open up a presentation of the gospel, or you can sit there and stutter. Those are your choices. This is not a, well, it's just, I'm just not going to get into that. That's not where we are in the world today, folks. We have to be ready for this. And so um, we've already done two programs. I should probably go back and grab them and relink them 
so that you can go back to them and review the information. And in fact, I, I retweeted. Somebody did that. They, they went back and grabbed it, and I, I retweeted that day before yesterday, I think. But um, anyway, uh, this is not something we can... We, we have to take advantage of the opportunities that are given to us, and this is an opportunity. Yes, the people pushing this are promoting confusion and ungodliness and, and a rejection of the gospel and the whole nine yards. Fine. Use it for the good. Use it for the glory of God. And the only way to do that is if all of us, not, well, here's a URL, go watch it. If all of us know the subject well enough to handle the information. Uh, we have a standing invitation to the people who produced this film to debate the topic. Be happy to do it. Let's do it. I doubt they're going to do that, but there you go. But November 12th will be the premiere. I assume it'll show up on some of the streaming uh, channels, services, whatever, uh, after that. And eventually we'll, we'll be easily accessible to everybody. And so you will have to be aware of this information. There is no place to hide. There is no place to hide. Okay, last thing. Um, let me read you. Uh, where did that go? Um, oh, maybe I didn't open that one. No, I opened that one. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Let me read you a few tweets from this morning. Here's one. PSA, that means public service announcement for those of you who aren't used to that. If you're curious about the value of medieval sources, the nature of sola scriptura, etc., don't waste your time reading this. They don't interact with their opponents. They ask questions no one is asking. They refute views no one is espousing. You're welcome. With a link to today's Grace Bible Theological Seminary Journal uh, that was released at 10 a.m. this morning. Uh, I believe that this was posted less than two hours, and it may have been less than one hour, but the time difference is not 100% sure. But here you have an individual, and maybe he read the whole thing in that time frame. It's possible. But this is the kind of bias and bigotry and scholastic snobbery that we are facing today. For example, if you're curious about the value of medieval sources, the nature of sola scriptura, if any of you have taken a look, we're talking about the first edition of the new Grace Bible Theological Seminary Journal for pastors. And I have two articles in it. It was initially one article that got too big, and so we had to split it up. I was originally going to be writing simply on Thomas Aquinas' view regarding the subject of what we would call sola scriptura. And my conclusion, by the way, is that that's, that is an anachronistic question. That no one in the days of Thomas was arguing about what we are arguing about today. And so it is a, a common historical error to try to go back and take somebody out of the context in which they were living and uh, 
asked questions of them that they never actually addressed and answered. But my conclusion was, no, he did not hold to what we believe is sola scriptura. He may, but he was not as far in the departure from sola scriptura as modern Roman Catholicism, and certainly not as Tridentine Roman Catholicism, the Counter-Reformation Roman Catholicism. So it was a nuanced answer. Uh, it drew from his own writings. But before you could address that, you had to define sola scriptura. So we broke it up to where I have an, basically an article that walks through the first chapter, as I've done in this program, of the London Baptist Confession of Faith and defines sola scriptura. So here you have a statement. Uh, if you're curious about the value of the nature of sola scriptura, don't waste your time reading this. Well, thank you very much. No, no interaction with what was said, of course. And I, within a few minutes, because it posted at 10 a.m. this morning, I think it was 10 a.m. Is that central time? I think so. Anyway, within a few minutes, I posted, I said, let me wax prophetic. And I said, this is this, this kind of response you're going to get. Wow, did I nail that one. Um, and in fact, I wasn't nearly nasty enough to cover the kind of commentary that has... Uh, come out. They don't interact with their opponents. Yes, we do. It's a lie. You know who I'm, I'm just going to avoid the name for right now, but, but you know who you are and you lied. That's a lie. I've had many of my opponents exactly raise the issues that I dealt with in my, in my uh, articles. You lied about my articles. Why? I want you to sit back and ask yourself the question, why could you not even try to be accurate? They ask questions no one is asking. Wrong. Untrue. Maybe you're, just, maybe you're just living in an ivory tower someplace and you don't even know what's going on on social media. I don't know. But this just, it's just wrong. They refute views no one is espousing. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, there's the first sad one. Then we have this guy. I've blocked him, but, but, but I, I pulled it up because someone posted it. Because there's the, the GBTS seminary Announcement of Pro Pastor, the name of the journal. Now, this is a journal, multiple authors. He says, I highly recommend this article. It's not an article, it's a journal. There is a difference between the two. I highly recommend this article written by three people, there was more than three people, who either have no clue about what Aquinas teaches or are engaging in rank sophistry, whose, quote, scholarly, end quote, qualifications are having large followings of rabid sycophants. GBTS is the IFB KJVO Bible College of the Neo-Reformed. <laughs> this is someone who clearly has not even read it, doesn't even know what it is, doesn't know how many people contributed to it, thinks it's an article. Wow, talk about face planting. <laughs> it's just, but can you, can you, you get the visceral uh, anger? How dare you people do this? And then Robert Briggs from over in Sacramento. Robert Briggs, Steve Meister, Robert Briggs over at Emmanuel. 
claiming that genuine and faithful attempts, notice the, notice the spin there, genuine and faithful attempts to appropriate the great theologians of the church to the church today is somehow nefarious ecumenism, is ridiculous and dangerous. Cults are formed that way. Beware of such folly. Hmm. Now there's a vagueness here, but I would just I would just go okay. Um, part of our argumentation is that we're not being genuine and faithful to our own theology when we fundamentally sacrifice our commitment to the supremacy of Scripture. Great theologians of the church to the church today. I I really struggle with the idea that most of the framers of the London Baptist Confession would have viewed the Church of Trent as the church. Maybe you've changed your view, but, but Robert, you know this is not what you believed only a while ago. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. Um, it's ridiculous and dangerous. Cults are formed that way. Cults are formed that way. What? We're simply sitting here saying, brothers, you've lost your balance. Brothers, you are being led away by the wisdom of the world, by sophistry. But I haven't said anything about a cult starting. Why do you guys have to do this? The reactions that we have seen so far have been visceral, emotional, immature, and childish. They have not engaged the substance of what has been argued at all, which is exactly what I said would take place. I wasn't trying to. I didn't want it to be that way. I didn't expect it to be this bad. But the speed. There is no way that anyone had read my discussion of Thomas and his, you know, he, he talks about Scripture in very exalted language. The only way to check the accuracy of that is to go back and do it. You didn't have time to do that before you wrote this stuff. You know it. You know it in your heart and mind. You're responding without doing due diligence. It's sinful and it's wrong. Disagree if you will, but good grief. Have the, have the Christian character to sit back and check your sources. Actually listen. This is knee-jerk reaction. It's all it is. From every one of these guys. Knee-jerk reaction. It's amazing. And what it tells me is, you know, I've, I've, I've said from I don't even know when there should be Get together, there should be papers, there should be a debate. You guys are not acting like people who have any interest in doing anything like that at all. You're acting like the people who think, you've already got this all settled, everybody else just needs to repent and believe you. That's why I am less and less and less uh, convinced that anything like that will ever happen. Because of this kind of stuff. You know, when you all put something out, you know what we do? We get the links, we download, 
We listen. We discuss. You didn't see us posting stuff five minutes after one of your conferences. And you know what? When you all do your Christology conference, you know what we're going to do? We're going to download it. We're going to listen to it. We're not going to respond to it within two hours because we actually have respect for this subject. I'm just, I am shocked. I am amazed at the behavior of these individuals that I continue to call my brothers, but oh my goodness, I will never treat you the way you treat us. I will not, I will not do it. I will not do it. I'll call you out. I'll say, this is childish behavior. And I'll say, look, if you disagree with what I wrote, prove me wrong. Show me where I was wrong by, about what I said about Sola Scriptura. Show me where I was wrong in my interpretation of the first chapter of London Baptist Faith. Show me where I was wrong about Thomas. Oh, goodness. Thomas, Thomas is not a completely consistent source, so you could probably find a way to try to argue something. But the reality is, I took a very moderating historical position. It's anachronistic to ask if Thomas Aquinas functioned on the basis of Sola Scriptura. That's an anachronistic question. I said that from the start, argued it. But then what I did, I went into citations from him, and we only have so much space. You could, with Thomas, that's the point. It's so easy to dismiss anyone who criticizes Thomas because you could always find something else that Thomas wrote on something. You've got a huge amount of stuff to pull from. But on the subject of the primacy of Scripture, as the rule of faith, we dealt with the key texts. Have you? Did you? Before posting this kind of stuff? And I simply ask honestly, why not? What has happened? Because for every single one of you that I knew only a few years ago, this is not how you behaved then. What has happened? What has happened? I don't get it. I don't get it. So I'm sure there'll be more. uh, But like I said, um, there's a bunch of stuff here uh, to look at from what's going on in the world that It's probably best not to mix into this so that (laughs) things can get posted. Censorship is such a wonderful thing to have to deal with. Um, Anyway, so with that, we will wrap things up on the... Well, it's it's right about... Well, no, we started five minutes late, so it's not exactly 90 minutes, but close enough, close enough. Like I said, fall is here. The Kuji has arrived. Rich is sad. Um, Rich is wearing shorts. Um, but and I'm and I'm overheated. There's no question about it. But it's fall for crying out loud, and I'm going to enjoy it because it'll be stinking hot by March. Fall is here, but autumn will come later. We don't have fall here. That's the problem. We only schedule winter in for two weeks in January for crying out loud. It just goes and it's gone. Uh, so there you go. Anyways, thanks for watching the program today. Oh, by the way, there they are. Remember I said, I said on social media today, what's going to happen to all of our purple copies of the existence of attributes of God? Now, they've got this new version out. This has worked perfectly fine for me. In fact, I was opening it up. I found an old, old business card. I mean, this was 1990. Right in the section on the immutability of God. Look at that. Been reading this for decades. Huh. Yeah, well, there you go. Thanks for watching the program today. We'll see you next time. God bless.